Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Today on the pod, we're going to be talking about Israel. We're going to be talking about North Korea. We're going to be talking about the White House and their leaking... Um, mocking people who are dying problem. They're so, kind. I got to tell you, there's a problem, and there's a not a problem. That's right. And we're going to get into just which is which. I can't wait to find <laughs> out. And later in the pod, my interview with the notoriously camera shy Michael Avenatti. How did you? Get, <laughs> how did we get him to do press? <laughs> a lawyer who's representing actress Stormy Daniels, as if he needs an introduction. Um, <clears throat> other pods, it says. Other pods. Love it or leave it. We ha- I heard there was a Supercut episode. A, That's what it says here. An super awesome uh, Supercut episode of our live shows in Baltimore and Columbus where we talked about social media and Twitter with um, a bunch of great panelists, including social media experts and researchers to talk about the way social media is changing our politics. That show is really, really good, and you can check it out now. People are loving it. And then also, uh, we're gonna, we're doing a... a <laughs> People are loving it, they're, they're Donald just, Trump. That's what I was doing. I'm just <laughs> being... A, that's what we do now. We hype ourselves. Lie, cheat, and hype yourself. Um, and uh, we have a live show in Philly on Sunday, and there are still a few seats left. Not many, Sunday. Tommy. It's a Sunday. We're, we're doing one Friday. That'll be out Saturday. And then we're doing another show Sunday. Love it or leave it never sleeps. Never you sleeps. Know? Okay, let's talk about the news. Uh, the United States officially moved its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem on Monday, reversing decades of American foreign policy in a move that many Middle East observers have called inflammatory as it would take a crucial piece of leverage off the table for peace negotiations. Tommy, how big of a deal is this move, and why do many people view it as divisive? Tommy, give us the uh, the Netanyahu <laughs> what, where, when, and why of this. He has been planning that line. For seconds. That was amazing ad lib. <laughs> so there, there are two significant events colliding this week. Uh, as you said, John, the on Monday, the Trump administration officially opened the new U.S. embassy, which had been re- relocated sort of from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I think they slapped a plaque up on another old building and they called it the new embassy. Uh, it is fraught, to say the least. Jerusalem has enormous religious historic significance. Uh, both sides claim it as their capital, the Israelis and the Palestinians. So... Jared and Ivanka flew out. Manukin came. Uh, they had a, a ceremony that kind of felt like a Trump rally. It was also the 70th anniversary of President Truman recognizing Israel's independence. So big day there. But meanwhile, there is this horrific violence in Gaza as part of ongoing protests. Um, the reports of more than 50 dead and 2,000 wounded. It's hard to verify these reports because they're coming out of the Hamas government in Gaza. But that is obviously staggering numbers. Um, they were organized and hijacked by Hamas, these protests, uh, which control Gaza. Uh, they, are, they are ostensibly about the Palestinians demanding the right to return to parts of Israel that they are driven out from or protesting the blockade of Gaza. But, you know, people were worried that this is going to get worse. Um, you know, the reason this is such a sensitive issue uh, regarding the embassy is both sides want their capital to be in Jerusalem. Who controls it? Who has their capital where is supposed to be decided in, in negotiations between the two parties in the Middle East peace process. And, and many Palestinians feel like 
we're essentially handing over uh, a part of Jerusalem that will likely end up being uh, the, the Israel's capital no matter what happens. But they're feeling like, OK, this is a big, important piece of this negotiation that we are uh, recognizing by moving the embassy there today. What was the Obama administration position on moving the embassy? Every administration says they're going to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem as part of a campaign promise. And then everybody holds on actually doing it because the intelligence community, uh, the Arab neighbors, a whole bunch of parties were concerned that it would lead to uprising, protests, violence, bloodshed. So we did exactly that. Obama said he would move the embassy, but ultimately never did because there was concerns about security. And that, and essentially, more importantly, that it was a final status issue that needed to be negotiated. Can we talk about the violence in Gaza? Can. Um, it does seem like, uh, you know, you said that Hamas obviously hijacked some of these protests, but it also seems like from reports that Israelis were firing on some unarmed protesters who were trying to climb this fence. Yeah. Um, what justification do Israelis give for shooting and killing uh, protesters in Gaza who are unarmed? Yeah, it's bad. Um, it, you know, the, the Tuesday uh, of this week is is a date uh, for Palestinians. They call the Nakba, which is referred to the catastrophe, which marks the day in 1948 when all these Palestinians were, were driven out of their homes. Um, and so these pal- these protests have been going on for, for several weeks um, leading up to tomorrow to recognize this day. Uh, Hamas did hijack it and they took it over. And, you know, what the, the Israelis say is when you have individuals storming the fence, trying to break into Israel, that they will uh, use force in sort of escalating fashion. So there is tear gas, there's rubber bullets, which don't really work uh, from long distances. And then they have been using live ammunition. And apparently their rules of engagement are that you can only use lethal force, like shoot for the head when you see, quote, terrorist activity, whatever exactly that means. Uh, and that if it's shy of that, they're shooting from below the knees. But, you know, it seems like some people were shot in the stomach, getting shot in the stomach, getting shot in the abdomen, getting shot in the thigh or knee and then going to a hospital in Gaza. Uh, you know, your odds aren't very good. So this is you know, pretty horrific. Well, it's, all, it's, what's it's, going on. it's also the context too. they're protesting. Uh, some of the protests were about the embassy move. Some of the protests were also have been going on for quite some time about Israel's economic blockade of Gaza. So right. people in Gaza are essentially trapped in this area. Right. And yeah. there's an economic blockade. And so they're trying to protest and now they're being shot. at. Yeah. I mean, the situation in Gaza is is awful. It's one of the most densely populated places on Earth. There's no work. There are no jobs or sporadic electricity. The water's dirty. Um, there's just no opportunity for these people. Now, Israel withdrew their forces in 2005. Um, uh, but, you know, the U.N. still classifies it as occupied because the Israelis control, you know, the sea border, the land border, the Egyptians control their border, and it's rarely opened. So they restrict the movement of goods and individuals. Um, so it's a, it's a dire situation in Gaza, and it's sort of been forgotten by the international community. So Jared Kushner acknowledged the violence in his remarks, except he said that the protesters being shot at are, quote, part of the problem, not the solution. Um, these comments were not included in the excerpts of his remarks that were delivered to the press ahead of time, and then they were omitted in the White House transcript afterwards. That doesn't seem uh, normal, does it? 
No. Yeah, you can't just edit the transcript with the parts that 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 uh, your dumb dumb son-in-law said because he was in a fit of pique. <laughs> I mean, do you remember when Obama would ad lib back in the day, or or even if we put out like a, a a briefing transcript from Josh Ernest or somebody else, and and we had to edit something that was a typo or was incorrect or transcribed wrongly, we would update it with like a star indicating that we had changed the official transcript. Now they're just putting out transcripts. <laughs> that are that are omitting key yeah that are doctored yeah it's perhaps. um it's another one of those small ways they're undermining the kind of bedrock systems that live between administrations i think one of the hardest tasks for the administration that follows trump will be rebuilding the apparatus for for <laughs> sophisticated honest rendering of events because it's yeah. all been so broken i mean everything from every press release having a bunch of typos and 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 and, and mistakes all the way to sending out incorrect transcripts is something that is um both incompetent and just sort of a symptom of the way this white house operates well i got something worse oh no uh because this entire episode isn't fucked up enough the trumps also invited evangelical pastor robert jeffress to lead a prayer at the op- embassy opening uh here's some comments from the highlight reel from uh, Robert Jeffress. He called Islam and Mormonism heresies from the pit of hell. He suggested that the Catholic Church was led astray by Satan, said that gays live a dirty and miserable lifestyle, said that Jews are going to hell. Jews going to hell? Yeah, at the at the uh, happy opening of the embassy in Jerusalem, Jews are going to hell. Yeah. They also brought, the, the other pastor they brought was John Hagee, the pastor who famously said, uh, that in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, it was because God was punishing New Orleans for hosting a gay pride parade. Those are the people that were representing the United States of America abroad today, giving benedictions and opening prayers at the opening of the Jerusalem Embassy. I cannot think of anything more disgusting. Did Joel Osteen say no? Or <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I just like... I. I'm just trying to imagine, like, you know, obviously with Obama, we went through the whole Reverend Wright thing. The first time they heard about Reverend Wright's crazy comments was Obama's announcement speech in Springfield. He was supposed to give the benediction, and immediately they said, oh, no, absolutely not. Now we're bringing these people, these two people who are saying that Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, cults, people going to hell, we're bringing them overseas to represent the United States of America? What the fuck is that? It's again... There were so many ways in which our system was protected by human shame (laughs) and by a desire to not make people too angry or sad for no reason. And if you remove that, if you remove any compunction about elevating horrible people, about caring about what people said in the past, about having respect for gay people or Muslim people or Catholics, (laughs) I mean, like, that's very old fashioned to be bigoted against Catholics. It really That's is. In, 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 the thing. In some of these some Yeah, of these I mean, it's, it's, uh, right. it's real throwback. Uh, but but, but the, the levers for saying this is wrong and having, a concept, having an effect by saying this is wrong is someone inside the White House has to give a shit. Yeah. But these people don't give a shit. And it's not like it's just a bunch of godless Democrats complaining about this. You have Mitt Romney saying a religious bigot should not be giving the prayer that opens the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. But there is this professional class of evangelical leader that has decided that nothing Trump does or says matters anymore if he advances their agenda on other fronts. Like there's a big... Uh, profile in New York Times, I think it was this weekend, about a guy named David Brody, who's like the lead anchor for Christian Broadcast Network. Yeah. It's a guy who used to f- hammer Democrats, still does all the time, 
Uh, and now it talks about his cozy relationship with Trump. They get lunch together. He goes to briefings. He gets exclusive access to Pence and never asks any of the tough questions about, you know, affairs with the porn star or any of the things that you would think that the Christian broadcast news would care about, given their past coverage of, say, Bill Clinton. There's, there's all I mean, we should also remember that we don't have anyone prominent on our side who we're bringing to events like that that are saying shit like that. But sometimes when someone even makes a minor comment that others deem offensive on the left, often we go into apology mode, say no. Like, after this presidency, no. It's also just like... <laughs> like we, we need to really seriously think of when we, on our side, when someone says something that might be construed as offensive, what we actually decide to do. I mean, you look at Mitt Romney saying, I'm glad Mitt Romney yeah, good for him. said yeah, this. Too. But the number of Islamophobic, anti-Muslim bigots anti-gay bigots that populate this administration is staggering and that hearing it's it's interesting in that run of run of bigotry from that guy um the muslim piece is what we hear all the fucking time we've just decided that 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 that, that there's a certain class of republican has decided they don't need to point that out every time when it's on their side you know we've made this point before imagine if somebody said this about jews or imagine if somebody said this about well this guy did this This guy 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 said you get a one-way you get a ticket to israel yeah i'm glad to be here i do believe the jews are going to hell but congratulations on the what i mean what (laughs) you'll be eventually be in hell but right now you get to enjoy this wonderful embassy oh it's a a weird i mean that is that view that you know we need Israel to be controlled fully by the Jewish people before that Christ can return is a, is a big strain of like really fundamentalist Christian theology and and a big reason that there is enormous support for Israel. It's this very weird right. deal We're gonna, yeah. where things are pretty your team badly. Now we're going to convert you in the end, but yeah. for now let's let's yeah, uh, exactly let's talk. Right. Let's do business. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too.
And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Uh, let's turn to North Korea. The White House announced last week that President Trump will meet in Singapore with North Korean head of state Kim Jong-un on June 12th whew, uh, to discuss a potential deal on North Korea's nuclear program. Over the weekend, National Security Advisor John Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that the two sides were already in agreement over what the ultimate objectives of the meeting would be. They both said that Trump will push for, quote, complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization. But then Pompeo said that Trump would be pushing to make sure that America is no longer held at risk by North Korea's nuclear arsenal and that he hopes that they get rid of their chemical and biological weapons. So it does seem like Pompeo... Either he misspoke or he's, he has a different position than Bolton in the administration. What do you make of this, Tommy? Well, there's been a lot of Korea news. Like, you know, like any engaged couple, they finally did it. They picked a date. <laughs> so June 12th in Singapore, Trump, Kim Jong-un, tete Save the date. Save yeah. the um, date. Two, two maniacs, <laughs> one bucket of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> episode title yeah, I love it <laughs> like you were saying it does seem like the US position is sort of like coming uh, into focus but they're a little all over the place like Trump has said North Korea needs to get rid of his nuclear weapons period in any deal Pompeo seemed to suggest that they might be able to keep their current arsenal and that the real objective is, is keeping them from striking uh, the US only that will really make our allies in Japan and South Korea very happy um, we also know that you know Kim said he will dismantle his most prominent nuclear test site. Trump tweeted how smart and gracious that was, but many experts think the thing basically caved in from you know nuclear testing so that it's no longer usable. So yeah, it's not sort of quite like a the, disposable camera situation. <laughs> and that's quite the concession. Pompeo is also out there acting like uh, any economic support that North Korea is going to get is going to be private sector businesses just like rolling in. I find that a little hard to believe. There won't be any direct U.S. economic aid because Bolton's kind of, you know, saying no. But again, I'm happy this is happening. Yeah, get it done, guys. But Still like, a ways n- off from uh, grande well, skim lattes I- in uh, in Pyongyang. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask, like. There's there's been some punditry that is like, why won't liberals give Trump credit for all that he's done around North Korea? So far, what has Kim offered Trump that past North Korean regimes haven't offered past presidents? What is new so far about what Kim has? Because we know he's offered the rest of the meetings. They just didn't take it. We know that they've they've destroyed testing sites before. Right. Nothing. Nothing. They're crossing the border. Yeah, I mean, look, crossing the border to uh, South Korea, having that conversation, uh, you know, a wildly improved tone. There's a lot of like atmospherics that are that are shockingly better than the status quo five, six, seven years ago, or or twenty years ago, or twenty years ago. But right, I mean, there it seems is, like there's been these periods in the past where it seemed hopeful, and there's been a change repeatedly. of tone, and they've met, and the North Korean and South Korean leader has met. Yeah, that's why the whole conversation about the Nobel Prize is so silly and everything else, because like we're just so far ahead of actual what success should look like, which is them getting rid of their nuclear weapons. I mean, that's the whole point of this. Is that yeah? So I was going to say, what is a successful summit um, short of them giving up all of their nuclear weapons, which seems. Would they, do you think they will give up all of their nuclear weapons? Feels unlikely to me. So, what, is there any success short of that? Them giving up nuclear weapons? Probably. I, I think it's the only realistic success is they have some sort of program or some sort of weapons capacity or capability that they hold on to. Is there a scenario where they give up 
the uh, capacity to strike the United States, but not South Korea, and then they still maintain something. Like, wh- I'm trying to figure I out what Pompeo guess, was saying. I, mean, I guess you could get rid of their entire ICBM program and, and call that a success. I, I just don't know how you could uh, shift the goalpost that much and call it a success or make your allies happy. Yeah, I feel like there's two things side by side. One is the fundamental situation, which we talked about before, which is uh, we've created incentives and North Korea knows those incentives, which is if you want to be a closed off regime that tortures your people and threatens your neighbors, um, uh, having nuclear weapons is one way to protect yourself and protect yourself from foreign invasion, protect yourself from bombing, protect yourself from regime change, protect yourself from American foreign policy shifts. You look at Libya, you look at Iraq, you look now at the Iran deal being torn up, you look at that, and and it's hard to imagine a set, the incentives not being there for Kim Jong-un to maintain nuclear weapons. They are an insurance policy against aggression. They are also a, 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 a card you can play, which he's playing now. I don't know that any... Barack Obama didn't change that. George W. Bush didn't change that. Um... Bill Clinton didn't change that. Donald Trump didn't change that. Uh, and I don't know that there is a way to change that. And this feels like the kind of locked policy problem that no one seems to have a way to unlock. Put that aside. I think the question that, that is harder to answer is, is Donald Trump's odd behavior and his refusal to kind of play by the logic of smart experts in the region who inevitably hedge towards a kind of moderate sensible, slow boil, slow rolling approach, tit for tat, small steps, give a little, take a little. Put that aside because he doesn't care and it's boring (laughs) and he wants a win and he wants the praise and all the rest. Did that shake things up to allow for the possibility of something short of giving up a nuclear program, but something better than another president could have gotten? And I think we have to be open to the possibility that the answer there is yes. But we don't know yet. A, we don't know. And B, at the heart of all of this is the worst person we've ever made president who can break it apart, ruin it, listen to John Bolton, use an excuse for military action, not accept the terms, walk away, screw it up, lie, what have you. And so I just think we don't know. And there's a lot of pieces that Donald Trump can mess up along the way. But I think we have to also be humble about it. Yeah, I just I think that the whole question, does Trump get credit or not, which seems to be coming up more and more in all the punditry, is such a premature, stupid question to ask right now because we just don't know. And in fact, I think we should also be prepared for the fact that after the summit, uh, Donald Trump will definitely probably try to (laughs) claim victory. And we still won't know until maybe months from then if it's a real good outcome or not. Years. I don't care. Years. I don't give a shit about the conversation about D- Donald Trump deserving credit. D- Donald Trump deserves the credit for whatever Donald Trump does and doesn't do. He's the president. Whatever. There's been a lot of people who thought what Donald Trump was doing for a long time was incredibly dangerous and incredibly risky. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But we're at a point where, in part because Trump is undisciplined, in part because Trump didn't care what people said, we are at a point where... There is this moment of a possibility for something different, that something something there is a there is a true inflection point now. And you have to look at that and say, well, you know, a lot of experts said this wouldn't happen. I just want us to learn the right lessons from these things. Like, I'm totally cool giving him credit for sanctions. I'm cool giving him credit for being open to talks and accepting them quickly and, and pushing this thing down the road. I think where we are being problematic is like to, to act like the madman theory totally. of tweeting like oh fire and fury all that shit was somehow helpful like, I find it highly unlikely that that was a useful thing for him to do especially when his own staff was undercutting him on the side saying no there's no real military option Steve Bannon on the record and it's like unprovable it's the, but, speculative of course. but the real the you know the, so is criticizing it what's important I think is like 
remembering that the person driving this train still is Kim Jong-un and and South Korea and the sort of really big steps that they've taken, that rapprochement, and that were helpful, hopefully, and and can help guarantee a good outcome here. But, like, I don't want to pretend that threatening every country out there is the way to do this. Yeah, what I was going to say is it's just as likely that if we end up having to give credit for Donald to Donald Trump for this, it's because his administration pursued a path that was not unlike what Barack Obama did with the Iran deal. Oh, absolutely. Which is, seems like it's, which also, I mean, I, I realize that we could point out hypocrisy all day long on this podcast and it gets very old, but it's amazing seeing Pompeo be like, yeah, we'll give them, um, uh, you know, freedom from economic sanctions if they uh, get, get rid of their nuclear program. You're like, gee, where did I just hear about this? Oh, the Iran deal that conservatives think was the worst fucking thing in the world. Like, what what is different about what would happen in North Korea and what happened with the Iran deal, except for the fact that nu- North Korea possibly already has nuclear weapons and Iran didn't? I mean, we don't know the outcome yet. Right. But it, it's certainly the case that, like, all the there, there's all these additional activities that we don't like that Iran does that Trump rightly criticizes. The, the ICBM development, the missile development, the, you know, messing around in Syria, mm-hmm. messing around in Yemen. Uh, I think you could sort of draw up a similarly bad list of things that North Korea does, like throwing hundreds of thousands of dissidents in a concentration camp or ICBM development, obviously, and, and make that, you know, make a similar argument. It does does feel like you need some consistency for anyone who does deals with us to understand it. The other thing, but the other part of it, I agree with all that. The, 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 the kind of paradox at the heart of the North Korea problem for so long has been we can't accept any deal that involves them having nuclear weapons and they cannot accept any deal in which they don't have nuclear weapons. And I don't know the resolution of that. I don't know how you get around that. But what what it seems that we were doing for a very long time and are maybe still doing, I'm not saying that Trump hasn't discovered some secret solution here, is, um, you know, creating sanctions, putting pressure on the regime. And then that regime still slowly and inexorably moved towards a more and more sophisticated nuclear weapons program because we don't have the tools to stop them. And they know that it's the only key to their survival. I think the broader concern is that there's a treaty called the NPT, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, that Israel, uh, India, North Korea, Pakistan, and South, they're not a part of. But we, um, but you know, the international community looks to this treaty as a way to establish a norm that says no one else is allowed to get nuclear weapons except for the people who already had them in, like I think, 1970, uh, and that those who have them commit long-term to wind down their arsenals with the goal of no nuclear weapons. And any expansion of the number of countries that it seems uh, to have nuclear weapons that seems sanctioned by the international community, whether through unilateral deals or what have you, is troubling and problematic and in a broader trend that you know goes against all sort of hopes for non-proliferation. Yeah. Wonky nerdy okay. no i think it's, a, it's, a, it's just it's Tough just problem. such a terrible yeah, it's just a, such a terrible intractable problem that 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 everyone has been arguing about for 30 years and it's never gotten better not one time yeah well let's hope for a good outcome uh let's talk about the white house uh we haven't talked about this yet but last week the hill reported that when white house staff were meeting to talk about gina haspel's confirmation process for cia director one communications aide kelly sadler joked that it it didn't matter that John McCain was opposed to her nomination because McCain, who has brain cancer, is, quote, dying anyway. Um, So this is gross. But uh, instead of reprimanding Sadler or apologizing for the comment, the White House has been attacking whoever leaked the comment, uh, with Donald Trump calling that person a traitor. Uh, Sadler reportedly called McCain's daughter Megan to apologize and promised to issue a public apology, but that has not happened yet. Nobody hold your breath. 
Uh, anyone surprised about this? I think you should start by just saying that is people make off-color jokes and people say things that they think are going to be funny that aren't funny. People screw up in meetings. People cross a line. It is still extraordinary for someone to say that kind of a joke in the White House. We all worked in the White House. People make jokes. But the idea that someone would make a joke like that is so crazy because everybody knows where you're sitting. You're sitting in this building and you're sitting in this place where you just don't make those kinds of jokes. And I think it, the fact that someone said it and then the fact that it leaks speaks to the fact that White Houses reflect the person in charge. And the person in charge is a scumbag who leaks all the time. And cruel. And cruel. It's just a cruel. They, they are cruel. Donald Trump is cruel. I mean, like... I'm not I wasn't totally surprised by the comment because they're working for a president who said of John McCain, I like war heroes who weren't shot down. You know, I mean, the, the way he's talked about Mexicans, the way he's talked about women, the way he's talked about African shithole countries. The man is cruel. His staff is cruel. John Kelly uh, interviewed with NPR last week when he talked about, you know, oh, if, if children come over the border with their parents and they're ripped apart, uh, you know, foster care or whatever will take care of them. Whatever. I was surprised and not surprised at the same time. Okay, like, it, that's a horrendously bad joke to make. And I'm someone who's made many, many, many horrendously bad jokes. But what, what I think this, this administration normally does is try to stamp out PR problems that weren't created by Donald Trump himself. Everybody else, he's allowed to screw up, do whatever he wants, and he goes to the mattresses for everything. Normally, if some, if some flunky, you know, like, lower-level aid screws up and does something shitty that person gets slapped on the wrist or at least gotten in trouble and they try to fix it that way or rudy or rudy says the wrong thing on sean hannity and trump goes exactly he's just getting started he's a moron he's just getting right so he's my dumb uncle you get slapped down a little bit the fact that they still won't fix this is crazy to me because a it's obvious you should it's the right thing to do b you promised the man's daughter that you would publicly apologize um so they're they're chalking this up to the fact that well Trump thinks the you know your the way you show weakness is to apologize because you're never going to get credit from the left and yada yada it's like in no part of their thinking does doing the right thing ever factor in it's and, all political and, and like they're getting hammered by Republican senators everybody everyone is that's hammered. What, that's what, it's like there's there's no constituency for mocking John McCain as he dies no but that's what, I mean. It, I think you tweeted this, Tommy. It's like it's it's one thing to to make a horrible joke, to say something that bad, which is bad. And you're right. You're in the White House. Never say something like that. But if you say it, the next move is, I am so sorry. I I made a huge mistake. Yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. Call the family. Say it publicly. It the was White gallows House, humor. I regretted it. The White I shouldn't House have said it, it. Why? Why can't they do that? Why does the White House have to suddenly and then you know Mercedes slap? who fucking left the correspondence dinner <laughs> in a be- in a snit in a snit smoky eyes because now smoky- I, now the civilization is ruined and she said and she said i stand put this on the record i stand by kelly sadler i Why? stand by what, what i stand by the by? woman who mocked someone who was dying but you know what i will leave this correspondence dinner to get to the fucking after party 10 minutes early because i am offended by a joke and they're These acting people- like fucking suck so and they're acting like leaks are the problem and the press is sort of leaning into this i mean what's funny is 
Sarah Huckabee Sanders lit everybody on the comms team up for leaking. And then five people in that room leaked to Axios about the meeting, about the leaks. And then Jonathan Swan over the weekend did a whole other story where all his favorite sources explained to him why they leaked. So these people have no respect for their team, no respect for the president, no respect for the office. Like it, it speaks to a, a bunch of mercenaries who were, you know, dumb enough, valueless enough to take this job in the first place. When you work in the Donald Trump White House, you are surrounded by the kind of people who would work in the Donald Trump White House. And these are the dregs of Republican public life. These are people with no scruples or worse, Trump scruples. <laughs> you know, th- these are and or and people that were that would not have been qualified, would not have been elevated in a Jeb Bush administration, a Mitt Romney administration, a Marco Rubio administration, because we don't have to agree with them. We don't have to like them. We don't have to like their worldview. But there are smart, talented Republican operatives who would kill to work in a White House that other than this one. And this is this is going to happen in the future. If we do not say as a society that these people, when they leave this White House, should not be rewarded in public life. You know, like this. The problem with a lot of these comments is they go right down the memory hole. We all have collective amnesia because there's like a million scandals a day. And then seven months from now, when Kelly Sadler is announced as a Harvard IOP fellow in a press release, (laughs) we're all going to be like, that sucks that that happened. And then someone's going to be like, well... Don't you think that Harvard should have Republicans as well as Democrats? You don't think anyone from the Trump administration should come to Harvard? No. These people should never – they shouldn't go to Harvard. They shouldn't get speeches. They shouldn't get book deals. They shouldn't get invited to the D.C. fucking fancy parties. They're bad people. They lie. They don't apologize. They're cruel. You know, the the fact that we're going to – I think there's a chance we get to the end of this administration and uh, Republicans will develop – a, a narrative about what happened that kind of cordons off Trump from the Republican Party that kind of cuts it off like a gangrenous limb. So they will they will deny the culpability for it. They will deny the responsibility before it. They will deny their collaboration with it. So they'll try to get make sure that Trump gets none. Trump people get none of the perks, get none of the none of the credit for what they were as Republicans, except for the money. So these people will so so Paul Ryan will will say he you know what what Donald Trump I never even never met the man but but then they'll still get their book deals and they'll still get so they'll be tre- in in the ways that are beneficial to them they will be treated like ordinary Republicans in the ways that it will hurt the Republican Party they will be ostracized yeah I mean look for a lot of people in Washington in the right wing in the in this, the Breitbart world Trump has been good business and, and look no further than Olivia Nuzzi's uh, profile of Sean Hannity. And, and Donald Trump in their symbiotic relationship. Someone in the story literally describes Hannity as like Trump's wife because he doesn't actually live with Melania. And so we need someone to decompress and chit chat with at night. And that is the role that Sean Hannity has played, according to a source <laughs> in the story. And, you know, like Hannity has employed Michael Cohen as his attorney, uh, never disclosed it, never paid a price for failing to do that. Like there are no journalistic ethics don't apply to these people anymore if they're in bed with the Trump administration and they're making a parent company money. I mean, it's it is and the, disgusting. And again, the lesson from us is the lesson for us is you don't take the criticism and the whining from the Trump administration or the conservative media seriously. Don't oh, answer sure. it. Don't take it seriously. Don't worry about it. I mean, because these people are all bad faith actors and it's it's not worth our responding to them. The thing that's sad is the world is treating Sean Spicer like he's normal. He's got the book deal, yeah. the book is coming out. He's not got the world the th- though. It's it's the it's the swamp 
that swamp, Donald Trump was talking well, about. It's the, the elite. The, it's elite the elite world that after people leave these kinds of jobs, get speaking gigs or high profile consultancies or or what have you. They are being Sean Spicer is leaving the White House in a way that looks very similar to the way Ari Fleischer or Scott. No, I totally disagree. Sean Spicer has gotten kicked in the teeth publicly he didn't get a network deal it's true. speaking fees are nowhere near like he he, he did get that madame toussaint's wax museum uh he's got the book deal. <laughs> yeah he got he, the book deal he, he did, did a madame he did get to his opening of he did get to unveil the statue <laughs> i i think like look he's making his middle. money but like he has gotten his he got a little spot on the right. emmys too though got, i guess it's, i guess i guess i guess the answer is more nuanced i guess in the end he is being treated more respectfully than he deserves but with less uh uh you know, solicitousness than a tr- traditional White House press secretaries have gotten. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the best we can hope for in this broken fucking culture. <laughs> <laughs> Bad people. Okay, when we come back, my interview with Michael Avenatti. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Michael Avenatti, welcome to the show. Um, I have to say when we started this podcast, I did not expect to be talking to the lawyer to one of the president's alleged mistresses about hush money payments and international bribery rackets but you know 2018 here we are (laughs) um so when you tweeted out information about all the companies and foreign oligarchs who paid michael cohen for access to donald trump last week uh you promised that there'd be more information to come so my questions are what additional information do you have what does it tell us about cohen and potentially about trump And why do you think it's important for all of us to know this information? Well, I'm not at liberty, at least today, to describe all of the evidence and all of the information that we have and that we're continuing to gather. Um, You know, one one of the positive aspects of the media effort that we've undertaken over the last eight weeks, John, is that we are now seen by many as the repository of uh, information and we are seen as a trusted source that people can come to 
if they have information that uh, they believe should come to light or should be run to ground, investigated, et cetera. And so I think that's been a very positive thing for us because with each passing day, uh, whether it's Monday through Friday or, or Saturday or Sunday, we're acquiring more information uh, for use not only in our case but also information that I think is important for people to learn about uh, and be disclosed. Uh, you know, as it relates to why I think the information we disclosed last week is important uh, as it relates to Michael Cohen. I, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, he was never a registered lobbyist. He was never a registered foreign agent. Uh, there's no question at this point that he was selling access to the president, to the highest office of the land. Uh, we don't know yet whether some of those payments made their way to Donald Trump or one of his organizations. Uh, excuse me, the entire thing does not sound, um, it, it doesn't pass the smell test. Let's just put it that way. Uh, you hinted that Cohen's payment to your client might have come from a company linked to a Russian oligarch. When you put something like that out there, are you doing it because you have certain information um, that might prove that, that you just haven't released yet? Or are you introducing sort of a new public narrative about the case? What's what's the purpose behind that? Well, I want to be really clear. We didn't say that the money came from a company that may have ties to a Russian oligarch. We said that the money came from a company, Columbus Nova, um, that does have ties to a Russian oligarch. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, I think that Columbus Nova has provided a number of different narratives or responses in, res- in response to what we released, none of which check out. I think Mother Jones did a pretty thorough job, I think, on Friday of debunking a lot of the denials where they're trying to now separate Columbus Nova uh, from the uh, from the uh, uh, overseas entity and from the Russian oligarch. And I don't think anything, any of it really passes any degree of scrutiny. I mean, there's no question that there's significant ties between that entity um, and the Russian oligarch at this point. Uh, so since you released the memo, you've been calling on the Treasury Department to release any suspicious activity reports around Michael Cohen's financial dealings. Um, do you know for a fact that those suspicious activity reports exist? Uh, yes, I do. I know for a fact that there are suspicious activity reports. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported on at least one of them, I believe, back in February or March. We know for a fact that there's multiple others. Uh, we don't know why the Treasury Department will not release them. I understand that generally they're confidential, but the reason why they're generally confidential is because they don't want to tip off the target as to their existence. Well, in this case, we know that the target's Michael Cohen, and we know um, of their existence because of, among other reasons, the Wall Street Journal reported on it back in February or March. So that's not a valid reason not to uh, release them. And this is a matter of significant public concern. Tens of millions of people uh, have a desire to see this information. And look, if the information that we disclosed is inaccurate, or if uh, Michael Cohen or the president have information that suggests that what we've said is inaccurate, then they should be wholly supportive of this idea of uh, Trump, Mr. Trump's Treasury Department releasing the SARS. They should also be wholly supportive of the idea of releasing his bank records. And we're not talking about a lot of bank records. We're talking about 14 or 15 months of bank records on a single bank account for Essential Consultants, LLC. Well, there's a reason why they haven't released that information, and it's because not only is it going to confirm what we've already stated, but it's going to get far, far worse for uh, Mr. Cohen and likely Mr. Trump, and that's why this information hasn't been released, John. Are you concerned that the uh, Treasury's inspector general 
has launched an investigation into how you have come to receive this information? Do you feel confident about how you got the information in the first place? Well, let me say a couple things about that. First of all, um, I have no problem with the investigation. Uh, we did not do anything wrong. We did not do anything illegal. So I'm not at all concerned about that. But what I am a little concerned about is the way the investigation has been reported. Uh, you know, a couple things. First of all, the investigation, uh, there's no confirmation that I'm under any investigation for anything by the Treasury Department or anyone else. So uh, any suggestion to that is completely false. Second of all, uh, there's no suggestion uh, that there's an investigation into the leak of a SAR per se. Uh, that has not occurred. Uh, what, has, what has been confirmed, I think, by, by Treasury is that they have launched some sort of investigation into something relating to some of this information, and that's about it. So uh, I just think it's important that that be reported accurately, and some of the other news organizations haven't done that. Okay. So let's talk about over the weekend. On Sunday, you tweeted a picture of Michael Cohen, Michael Flynn, and former Qatari diplomat Ahmad al-Rumahi uh, meeting at Trump Tower on December 12th, 2016. Uh, you then asked, why was al-Rumahi meeting with Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn, and why did he later brag about bribing administration officials according to a sworn declaration filed in court? Do you know if there have been Qatari payments to Cohen, Flynn, or other Trump associates? Well, unfortunately, John, I'm not at liberty to, to answer that question, but I stand behind what, we, uh, what I tweeted out. Uh, and I believe the declaration that was filed in court uh, is accurate. And I think all of this raises some very, very serious questions relating to Michael Cohen and exactly what he was doing and his role. I mean, we got to remember that Michael Cohen, to the best of my knowledge, did not have a formal position in connection with the transition, never had a formal position in connection with the administration, never had a security clearance, never registered as a lobbyist, never registered as a foreign agent. So what is he doing meeting uh, these two Qatari gentlemen uh, in the lobby of, of Trump Tower and clearly taking them upstairs in the elevator. Uh, and then they depart about an hour and a half later. Michael uh, Flynn is there that same day. This seems very suspicious. I mean, they're, they're not going up in Trump Tower to, uh, to, to purchase Christmas gifts or to uh, have lunch or dinner. That's clear. How much do you think, um, knowing what you do, that a lot of this wrongdoing is centered around Cohen? And how much how much do you think Trump knows or knew about what Cohen was doing? I think any suggestion right now um, or in the foreseeable future that uh, Mr. Trump had no idea what Mr. Cohen was doing and Mr. Cohen was just off on his own, doing his own thing, uh, without any supervision or knowledge by Mr. Trump, I think it's, it's complete nonsense, John. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a president who has stated unequivocally in the past uh, that uh, you know he likes to know what's going on at all times. He especially has a problem with people making money on him uh, without his pre-approval or knowledge. I mean, we've heard that in many, many uh, circumstances. Uh, there's nothing to suggest that him and Mr. Cohen were not in regular communication. In fact, just the opposite is true. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that they did have regular uh, communication. I mean, the president did not hesitate in early April on Air Force One to refer the media and the American people to his attorney, uh, Michael Cohen, for answers to questions relating to the reimbursement payments, uh, which we know those statements on Air Force One now were flat-out lies. So I think any suggestion that Michael Cohen was off on his own, doing his own thing, and the president never knew is complete nonsense. And John, you know, I'll tell you, I think, and I've been, I've been really firm in this prediction, and I stand by it today more than ever, 
There's no question Michael Cohen's going to be indicted. There's no question he's going to flip on the president. And when he does, he's going to lay out, I am confident, in great detail about what Mr. Trump knew, when he knew it, and what he did about it. So you've seen all the same smoke that we have coming out of the Mueller investigation. You've probably seen a lot more with the information that you have. Where do you think the fire is? And what would you be looking into if you were Robert Mueller right now? Well, I don't want to presuppose that or put myself in Robert Mueller's shoes, because I got to tell you, those, those are big shoes to fill. And I have a lot of respect for, um, for Robert Mueller and, and his talents and the talents of his team. I mean, these are some very skilled uh, prosecutors, uh, very talented attorneys, and I'm sure they're doing a, an incredible job. Uh, but, I, you know, let me tell you this. I, I think that Russian collusion, I think that that's a very difficult thing to prove for a variety of reasons, um, including that a number of the witnesses, the vast majority of the witnesses are not on U.S. soil and are not subject to subpoena power, which is a real problem when you're an attorney trying to prove a case like that. Uh, it, it doesn't mean it can't be done, but I just think that's a very difficult case to prove. There's, It's a very... Uh, complicated situation uh, in my view. I think that it's much more likely that ultimately what's going to be proven are are other crimes like bank fraud, money laundering, um, wire fraud, uh, whether it relates to the $130,000 payment to my client uh, or other business dealings of Michael Cohen. I I think at the end of the day that's going to be or those charges are going to be much easier to prove and also much easier to implicate the president in. That's my belief. Uh, so there's a little story this morning. Um, you threatened to take legal action against the Daily Caller for potential defamation, uh, according to tweets from one of their reporters. I always use that word loosely with Daily Caller. Um, that included screenshots of an email exchange you had with him. Um, do you think their story about you qualifies as defamation? What what was going on with that story? Yeah, let me let me say a couple things. So you know, not all attorneys are ethical because they're attorneys. And not all reporters or journalists are ethical and comply with journalistic standards because they call themselves journalists or reporters. And, you know, your statement I agree 100% with. I mean, look, I don't have a lot of respect for the Daily Caller. I don't think these are journalists or reporters. Um, I think they're hacks. I think they come to stories with a dedicated purpose. And I think in this instance, everything they've written, they've come to, uh, they've come to write uh, for the purpose of taking shots at me and my client and degrading us and demeaning us and basically engaging in a character assassin- assassination. So, you know, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with calling out a journalist or a reporter when one believes that they have engaged in improper uh, reporting, uh, disregarded standard journalistic uh, uh, standards, if you will, and uh, engaged in basically uh, unethical conduct. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, so, and just like I would not, if an attorney was engaged in unethical behavior or conduct, I wouldn't naturally jump to their defense just because they're a member of the bar without knowing the facts. And therefore, I think it's somewhat improper for other journalists to immediately jump to engage in this knee-jerk reaction and jump to the defense of the Daily Caller without looking at the story, without knowing all the facts. Um, so you've obviously uh, been on television a lot over the last few weeks. Uh, you've been arguing a lot of your client's case in public. What is the rationale behind uh, such a media-heavy strategy in this case? Well, this is not your average case, I mean, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and no, and, you sure. know, and cases, you, you handle each case a little differently, but, but depending on where it's venued, depending on what the issues are, depending on the, the public interest... 
uh, et cetera. And, and look, I stand behind our strategy. I think our strategy has worked uh, nearly perfectly. We have, uh, we have forced them into making a series of errors uh, which have only strengthened our case over the last eight weeks. Uh, because we've been so out front, uh, again, we're acquiring additional information that assists our case, uh, that also assists the American people in learning about what really happened here. Uh, you know, I understand they don't like our PR strategy. They'd like nothing more than for us to just, uh, you know, pack up and go home for a while. But we're not going to do that. I mean, what we're doing is working, uh, and it's working really well. Now, that doesn't mean to suggest that it's always going to work that well. Things can change. I mean, this is a very dynamic situation. But right now, I'm very pleased on on the strategy we adopted, and we're going to continue to use it until it breaks. Uh, you were telling people last week, you know, that. That to, they were sending you info and telling people, like, you know, if they want to help the cause, they should send in info. Um, what is your cause a- at this point? Is it bigger than Stormy Daniels' case individually? Is there something else that you're after here? It seems like, you know, as you're talking more and more about sort of all the entanglements between Cohen and Trump, it, you know, it's it's beyond, you know, the NDA between Stormy Daniels and um, and Donald Trump here. Our three primary goals, John, remain invalidating the NDA, uh, seeking damages uh, for the defamatory statements of Michael Cohen, seeking damages for the defamatory statements of Donald Trump, and uh, also letting it be known that those that my client's statements were in fact true, even though uh, Michael Cohen and Mr. Trump effectively called her a liar on repeated occasions. And then as an ancillary, uh, I guess as an ancillary goal, uh, ensuring that, that the truth and the facts are known to the American people and laying out the evidence for them that may come into our possession. And to the extent that those, that, that evidence and those facts lead to um, other repercussions, you know, so be it. Let the chips fall where they may. People that are far more powerful and far smarter than me and my client will ultimately make those decisions. Michael Avenatti, thank you so much. If uh, if you have more evidence and information to share, you're always f- free to do so here on Pod Save America. Well, happy back anytime. Thank you, John. Appreciate it very much. Thanks again to Michael Avenatti for joining us today, and thanks to all of you. What a heavy show this was. A lot of uh, a lot of substance. A lot of substance. You know some what? rants, some substance, and you know some hanging out. Some hanging out. We'll talk to you guys on Thursday. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.